And then cue the Baudrillard mix. The very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to another exciting edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our discussion today, we just want to mention we've got a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a dollar a month there. And if not, maybe leave us a cool review on iTunes. Either way, we appreciate y'all. We appreciate y'all for listening. But today, Taylor and I are taking a foray into the the deep Deleuzian lore with Raymond Rouillet's neo-finalism. A foray into Rouillet. <laughs> nice. That's right. And the foyer. Once more into the foyer. I got a physical copy. Sometimes we don't always have those. Been holding on to this one for a while. Really, I've only ever kind of poked into it, like looking at Deleuze's citations. I reread the conclusion of what is philosophy, and it's like where they talk about the uh, how the brain becomes subject with the three planes, philosophy, science, and art. And they go back to Rouillet's notion of absolute self-survey. I think Deleuze first discusses Rouillet in Bergsonism. Although that might have been published, I'm trying to remember the the date. Difference repetition Bergsonism is like when he first references Rouillet. Mm-hmm. So you can see from some of the earliest work to some of the last work, he's thinking about self-survey. He's thinking about Rouillet's. I guess we'll talk a little bit about Rouillet, right? I mean, like, yeah, it might be good to give a little background. A little background. Because... I think he was born in 1902 dies in 87 one of the last things he wrote is like raymond rie by himself par louis mem which is is a is a fairly short little like autobiography and it's really about it's not really an autobiography as much as he does have an autobiography he talks about his like his family and stuff but um in this it's like an intellectual bio it's kind of neat i would love to translate it at some point and just like maybe just throw it up on a blog or something haven't done that in a while, but that'd be cool. Anyway, so like 1902, he goes into school. I don't think philosophy was his first choice, but it does. He becomes like one of the best students in his, you know, they have all these different like tests and evaluations. He's like consistently ranking first in most of the stuff, not in everything, but in most of his little examinations. And um, he's got his first book. His thesis is the uh, the one that you made fun of, the esquisse den philosophie de structure. You're making a joke about the uh, de apostrophe uni. Nah, oh, Dune. I, okay. Yeah, Dune. So his first book is like on this this sketch or outline of a philosophy of structure, which um, he'll kind of move away from later because structure 
as we'll see in this book, it's kind of a secondary formation without the absolute form of self-survey. So it's later by the 40s, if not before that, in his second book. And well, okay, his second book technically is his, you have the secondary thesis, which is on uh, Cournot, who I don't really know much about. So I'm not really going to talk about it, but I, I, I would love to look at it just to, or look him up. But in any case, his second book is called, uh, is it Body and Consciousness? Or is it Consciousness and, and Body? So taking up, obviously, like Cartesian themes, if you want to say right. that. Yeah. I mean, he but does if you, get into dualism a little bit in this text as well. He's got some yeah, little uh, diagrams as well. And the dualism will be very much displaced from the mind-body problem, right? Because he is anti-Cartesian. So even by his second full book, he's moved away from this attempt or this outline of a philosophy of structure. Structure is now no longer the, um, the key ingredient. After writing this book, though, you know, you got World War II. He's an officer in the French army. He's captured. And he's sent to this officer camp, which is interesting to think about. I would love to read kind of a, a history, a study of this. But he's at this officer camp. And he's with some contemporary thinkers like Etienne Wolfe, Alexis Moyes, these biologists. And in the officer camp, I guess he's there till the end of the war. They set up a little university. So this is way different than we might think of a, a, a typical prisoner of war shit. It is interesting, too, that during this time, you know, Sartre's writing like being a nothingness. Well, Rouillet is learning. He's literally like taking courses. I think he took like 18 months of, of this course by Moyes and um, Wolf on embryology. And so it's really at this concentration, not this concentration camp, that's not the right word, at this officer camp, this prisoner of war officer camp, where he's learning about embryology. And it's that kind of hardcore study of this emerging science that I think influences his philosophy irrevocably. I think that that's that's what guides him the rest of the way and is the guiding thread for the development of the rest of his philosophy, notwithstanding some of his, like maybe his Gnostic, his unconventional, I mean, in a certain way, his Gnosticism is kind of neo-Gnosticism. I won't talk too much about it, but the last chapter of this book we read today is Theology and Finality. And just to like say really quickly, you know, in Gnosticism traditionally, you know, you've got a kind of God who is like the Demiurge. Well, you have the Demiurge who's the creative inspiration, right? Well, you have, you have, you have like two sides of God, one that's like ungraspable and not revealed in nature. And I think that that's part of his neo-Gnosticism, if you will. So like the but one sort of vibe or just something, something like that, right? The like one, that. the real unsymbolizable, doesn't unpresentable, right? It's, um, and then you have, you have the the kind of face of God, the God that the Demiurge, as you said, that creates the world and the material nature of which he is the creator is considered lesser evil, right? It's something we have to get away from. And I think that that moral tinge of 
the material world is kind of a fallen world is ontologically absent from Rouye. But I do think that he will have some interesting ways of conserving a hierarchy between, like, say, form and structure. Where now structure is not bad, it just doesn't have the auto subjectivity of consciousness that he will attribute to all true forms. It may become epistemologically, that's not even the right word, right? Noseologically fallen or degraded or secondary. Secondary is really better than this moral tinge that you see in classical Gnosticism. Yeah. Where material world's bad. The way that Deleuze has with like the plane of eminence and the plane of consistency, like I, I don't know, maybe I'm being too surface level with my analysis there, but I don't know. No, I, I mean, like Deleuze kind of cribs some of the, he kind of cribs some concepts from Rouye and uh, like he always does, plays with, yeah, them, adds his I own mean, little spin on them. The work that 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 Rouye publishes after he comes out of the uh, officer camp in '46 is Elements of Psychobiology, that and that's super interesting too. That's, I think, where Rouye really starts to lay down the fundaments of absolute self-survey, which we'll get into. That's one of the books that Deleuze cites. That's the one that Dan Smith said he wanted to see translated. When I asked him what was the one book he, he would want to see translated. You know, we've talked a little bit about it, too. But one of the cool things about Rouye, you know, he's always he was offered a position at the Sorbonne where he would have, I think, had, I think it would have gotten him renown. Yeah. It would have obviously gotten him more exposure. But he always uh, stayed kind of outside Paris. I can't really blame him. I mean, some people just aren't. I don't really dig the urban scene, so I get it. Um, and he always taught at this little, you know, outside in this province, uh, Nancy. You introduced this discussion as a kind of delving into the Lysian lore. And while I think that that may, on the one hand, one could say that that's like yeah. kind of a disrespect to how 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 amazing Rouye is right. as a thinker. I think on the other hand, Rouye never got a lot of recognition during his life. And I do think that one of the reasons why he's even translated in English today, you know, in 2016, we had uh, neo-finalism. I think in 2022 or 21, we had... The Genesis of Living Forms was translated by John Rofe and um, his co-translator, whose name I, I'm not familiar with, so I'm not going to worry about it right now. His book on cybernetics is being published Ooh. in December in English. Nice. So this, you know, Renaissance of Rie studies also occurred in the aughts and in the teens when Puff republished some of his work. You started seeing contemporary French philosophers right on him again but i do think that Deleuze kept his name at least somewhat more visible than i think it may have been but one of the most famous things that Rouye did interestingly was his book the gnosis of princeton which i think would be cool to see published at some point but in any case i think we've talked about this a few times have, i'll yeah. just be quick where he's writing from the perspective of a group of a fictional group, a fictionalized group that he made up of American scientists working at Princeton that would be a kind of cosmological, theological worldview unified by science, biology, astronomy, physics, quantum physics. 
And I think that the, the thing is, Rie was able to craft his not only his like philosophy of values, he's got a book called Philosophy of Values. So he's able to like craft his philosophy of values, his his understanding of absolute survey and embryogenesis and absolute form, yada, yada, yada. He's able to present to a French audience who is hungry for always it's like whatever is exotic at the time is is interesting. So obviously American thinkers would be like cutting edge or something just like we might think of Ger French German and continental schools, right? There's there's something uh, interesting about it. So that you, ha you have this audience who's hungry for American science or Anglo science. And so he's able to couch his philosophy, his understanding of of values and finality, blah, blah, blah. And obviously these theological Gnostic views and he's, he's able to couch them and, and give them voice and body from this American, this like, you know, it's kind of like Bourbakian mathematics, right? The, the, the sort of the group of, of aura tycoon or something like that, right? There's something kind of interesting about this nameless group of American scientists coming together to like give body to these ideas it was his best-selling book, right? It was a bestseller. It was really uh, well-received. And um, wasn't really revealed till later that this was a, was a hoax. And I don't think there was anything malicious behind Rie. Maybe a little mischievous. Maybe also a little self-aware. Where, you know, there is something interesting about putting the ideas first and thinking, well, I don't have the personal capital behind my, my name or my renown. I got to put, to put the ideas first and to get a wider audience. I need to, I need to create this, this fiction, this myth. And so that's really interesting to me, right? This, this hoax and it, it paid off. has a tinge to it. I think so. The powers of the false, right? There's something similar to just in the history of literature of just using pseudonyms. It's something like writing under a pseudonym, but aggrandized, but in a, yeah. even a grander sphere. To the N plus one. <laughs> right. Because instead of a, a, a pseudonym, you, you are kind of crafting this mythical super team of I mean, very interesting to given his kind of ideas of surrounding multiplicity and kind of these this kind of dialogue between bottom up and top down hierarchy or i guess a method of analyzing from those different perspectives i really enjoy this kind of speculative metaphysics and speculative ontology kind of in the same let's say for lack of a better word genre than the michel serre that we discussed in our last yeah episode. i agree with this some i mean i mean to a certain extent Rouillet doesn't have the literary flair True that Sarah has, and that's not to disparage him. That's just a different mode of, right. of writing. Whatever Sarah is trying to do, it can't be contained in the genre. It's almost like acid jazz or some shit, right? But there is something I think that Rouillet has a sustained kind of point of view. And even though he gives us the idea pretty early on, at least it's fully fleshed out, I think, by chapter nine, which is one of the most famous ones. That's the one with some of the diagrams of the uh, of like the painter painting. The painting with him painting the painting ad infinitum, right? And it's got the checkerboard and these other things that we'll get into where he actually really 
fleshes out absolute survey. That's even earlier than midway in the book, but he really tries to mobilize a lot of evidence specifically from embryology, right? To, right. Um, yeah. A lot of that was very, very cool. To be able to, to, to put forward this idea. I get what you're saying there. And yeah. And as I said, you know, what's interesting about this would be the last time I bring up what is philosophy. What's interesting about what is philosophy and its way of characterizing the brain as the junction of the three disciplines of art, philosophy, science. Okay, gotcha. It's not a conjunction because a conjunction would be a kind of a unitary field, a, a way in which there would be the con of a conjunction would imply a kind of super added domain something that that's conjoining from above it's merely the junction which sounds strange right because we think of a junction almost in terms of like traffic or some shit i think of a junction uh, box which right sort of like a fuse box right 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 so when they talk about philo uh not philosophy when they talk about the brain as the junction of the three disciplines and it's really important to understand the junction as a sort of not presupposing unity because right. each discipline yeah. has its own singularity and they're each heterogeneous and neither of them can do what the others can do, but together with their powers combined, you know, captain brain, I think that, that when they call it, when they call the brain, the junction, they are thinking of absolute self-survey. There's not this supernumerary dimension to the disciplines that would connect them does that make sense yeah yeah um, totally because i think if i'm i may be jumping ahead but i think there's something no, i already jumped ahead so let's, <laughs> jump ahead. i was just wanted to say that i think there's something a relationship maybe as far as like the notion of the partial objects the sort of logic or the of it is very similar in this way like they're not complete they're sort of they're not complete they're not yeah, I forget what the word is that I'm I'm struggling to find the word. Well, they're there's they're not. I mean, as you said, they're not complete. They're not objects. determined. Yeah, they're not like over determined. So they're not. They're not, they're not from. They're not from some lost hole, right? That's where the body without organs as yes. not unifying, right? The parts or the part objects, the partial objects, is important, and I think that that's the same thing where the brain isn't what is unifying the disciplines right right this is why the brain becomes subject it's i mean like he says what they say becomes um with philosophy it becomes superject with art it becomes inject with science it becomes eject it's this all like this again it's almost pseudo heideggerian language different ways of like throwing the brain because you could add that to Anyway, I said I wasn't going to talk more about what is philosophy, <laughs> but I do think that that's why they turn to Rouye in the conclusion to make this point, because they say it is the junction, not the unity of the three disciplines. If it were the unity of the three disciplines, it would be this transcendent image again. It would be this image of something outside of them that unifies them. And I think they are trying to think the brain in, in the way in which they're thinking eminence, which is eminent to nothing else. They're trying to think the brain is plane of eminence. And so that's why they have to turn to this notion of 
absolute self-survey. We might as well talk about this in order to get to some of these other terms that I've already brought up, form, structure, and these things like this. I mean, he leads up to it. In fact, he leads up to it with, this is chapter nine in the book, which I think is like, if anyone is interested, anyone's listening, I would almost say you could jump to chapter nine and just read chapter nine and um, you would probably get a lot out of it. Although there are, although some of these chapters leading up to it are super important, like description of finalist activity, you know, just to get an idea of what he means by finality, which we could talk about too. Maybe we could talk about that before we jump in. What is neo-finalism, right? Right. Yeah, that's a good idea. This is what we were starting to talk about yesterday when my audio was fucked up. I -hmm. had even speculated that, you know, I was kind of asking what is this, is there a uh, relationship between finitude and this neo-finalism you, you did ask that and yeah i think that i think that finitude is is more of in the neo-kantian tradition of thinking about subjects in relation to the transcendental for example right or even subjects and and thought in relation to the transcendental and the empirical that must be a, like a subtle distinction for well, the novice like myself that seems like a just that subtle distinction but uh, in, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, in, in the sense in which infinitude, there is, I think this is why there is this notion of what we want to call like in phenomenology, especially there's this notion of givenness. There's a sense in which finitude is. Okay, I'll be quick because we have we have more yeah, important yeah, things to do, but I would say that all of it comes back to we can't know the thing in itself what we can what we can think it right we right. can posit okay. it as this x this transcendence equals x that is ungraspable is unattainable for many reasons that pertain to Kant's system the thing in itself is a kind of necessary block of philosophical positing in order for the system to work specifically when we start to get to questions about morality questions about what ought i what should i do and so insofar as we cannot grasp the thing in itself we are condemned to a kind of finitude but if you follow the system and you kind of follow the post-Kantians, this finitude is actually a uh, kind of good thing, right? Because it is the index of thoughts, inherent limitations of not allowing the transcendent into its form of thinking. The simplest thing, why is something the way it is and, and not some other way? You could always point to a transcendent God to give the meaning, the sense, the end for why something is the way it is. That's disallowed. Insofar as we are condemned to a kind of finitude, we have limits. There are limits of the faculties. There are limits of thought that point to legitimacy. Does that make sense? So all of this kind of comes down to 
what is allowed and what is disallowed once we accept the finitude of of the subject of of thinking and so in that sense that's where the limit between the transcendental and the empirical becomes important because really what finitude is about is we have to orient ourselves towards the conditions of possibility of things and not try to sort of get to kind of kind of again finitude also points to like the Hume's project where he is wanting us to become well, you could say skeptical or he's wanting us to become empirical and not keep trying to erect the causes of things when actually those are fictions those are myths or those are sort of political moves where we might think of the cause as from human essence or or god given moral principles blah 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 there's always a sub tended political move because it's like oh you have to act this way because that's the way things are right there's always some some kind of conservative move in that and i think that uh Kant following hume is going to say that's not good enough we're not going to allow that hopefully that makes some sense yeah no that definitely helps clarify <laughs> for sure in ruyer's sense finality then, you know, an end to something, finality, the end towards which something is in relation. I think this is where finalism gets its notion because it's looking at the sense or end of things, right? And so for like Rouillet, he will, for example, qualify work. It's our way of, I mean, like, you know, you could even look at Heidegger. Heidegger has a kind of finalism if you want to talk about it. Obviously, it's it's a phenomenal phenomenology, and so it wouldn't be called this. But the way we orient ourselves in the world, the way we we accord ourselves with the equipment of the world, the way we sort of go about our everyday lives and make use of tools, we're always sort of directed towards a goal, and our work and activity is never purely arbitrary you could even think of someone like jackson pollock which i i loved your you know your joke about uh the cia's best <laughs> funny story about that is like whenever will and i walked into the room that was in i was like oh look it's the cia's best work greatest achievement yeah and then i was like I mean, oh that's a, that's a tweet <laughs> i mean like you even look at someone like pollock and even if you can say that the you could say something logically like the end of the artwork is to suspend the typical manner in which painting is being done. Right. But that's still an end, right? It's yeah. kind of like choosing not to decide is still a choice, right? right. Like, yeah, that's so for for Rouillet, freedom and activity, work activity is what he calls it, right? Always are kind of in tandem. They always come together. And it's never just about freedom isn't just like doing whatever, like complete spontaneity. That's obviously a kind of fiction, right? We are embedded in a world and blah, blah, blah. What was it that Michael Hart said um, with Spinoza? It's freedom of the mind, not freedom of the will. I think Grant Maxwell said this, this too when we, we were discussing with him. And so there's something similar to that with freedom of work. And one works towards a goal. In French, the goal is uh, is boot, B-U-T. It's a silly little word, but 
but fan is an end. It, you can also think of an end as a goal. The ends to be achieved, you know, we were just talking about Kant, you know, treat other humans as ends as, and, and not as means, right? So I think that for Rouillet, the only problem with classical finalism is the way in which one can then begin to look at finality in the world and merely see a kind of step-by-step, -step, and this is the word that we see in the translation over and over, the sort of causally inferential, sequential, linear unfolding from cause to effect or whatever you want to call it towards an end that's predetermined and whose trajectory is presupposed and preformed as though it's it's latent in phenomena or in the structure of the universe or in God's will. You see, we start to like bring in a lot of baggage. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can see in Leibniz a kind of finalism, right? The best of all possible worlds. Right. We can see all the way back in Aristotle when he's talking about biology, he wants to talk about things. And this is where we get terms like telos and teleology. He wants to talk about organisms, for example, in terms of entelechy. I'm not sure if you've heard this term, but it is a kind of, it is the kind of guiding principle, guiding dynamic principle that, that orients a being towards, you know, the acorn towards the oak, right? There is an entelechy in that dynamic unfolding of a kind of paradigm or a kind of a, I think that what Rie is trying to argue that classical finalism is thinking of entelechy, which is a kind of blueprint of becoming that's inherent in beings, kind of following a pattern, if you will, as though the spatio-temporal unfolding of becomings were already sort of inherent in the structure of matter or in the um, laws, the physical laws of the universe. Right. I think that, yeah. that that kind of teleology is what Rouye shows to be outdated, and rightly so, and it already would have been at his yeah. time, especially since, you know, Rouye is grasping with some of the developments, not just of embryogenesis and embryology, which we talked about, but quantum physics. And it's actually quantum physics in tandem with what he's learning from embryology that is making him rethink ontology in terms of a neo-finalism. And what I mean by that, and I'll get this thought out and we can, if you let me get it, get it, give me a second. Rouye wants to dispute ontological meta, uh, the classical ontological vision, which we could even talk about in terms of metaphysics, whereby we talk about beings as though they were substances. We talk about beings in terms of what properties they have. For Rouye, a being is merely activity. Being is what it does. So right. I think, yeah. for example, That's we were just, we talked about what, you know, Epicurus, and I don't think Sarah would dispute this, in fact. But if we talk about like the Epicurean Lucretian view of atoms and, and the swerve, I think that to a certain extent, one could say atoms are the activity of falling, of swerving, of vortically colliding. 
they are their activity. I think that for Rie, this this is where it becomes super interesting. He'll look at, for example, he'll he'll use this phrase from quantum physics called the quantum of action. And to a certain extent, he will derive from this notion of the quantum of action the very fact that atoms are what they are because of what they do and not because of some ingrained ontological yeah, principle. Right. Which is they, another kind of yeah. little little, you know, thing that Deleuze and Guattari riff on, so to speak. They kind of bend the note, you know what I mean? I do think so. I I, I think that the um well, I, yeah, I mean, I think that with design machines, we see a principle like this, right? Or representation generally. And their critique of representation generally, right. Because it's not, it's not about what a book says. It's, what, it's about what a book does. It's not about what... The unconscious is not something to be interpreted as though it, it were merely hiding somewhere in the recesses of the mind. This is where empiricism that- comes in. I think this. I think this is exactly right. That that this is why Deleuze uh, stays, remains faithful to uh, Rouillet. In fact, I was looking for this. Lacan talks about Rouillet a few times in his oh, seminars. One of them is in, I think, seminar one, where or maybe seminar two, where he's talking about camouflage, and he he's like, "Go read, go read Rouillet's Neofinalism. You'll see." <laughs> that how how camouflage works um in fact we see early on and ruya is using the notion of camouflage right to to start to open up these ideas but then i think in seminar three ruya had just published his book on cybernetics and and lacan just out of left field's like i think it's because in the psychoses yeah seminar he is talking a little bit about cybernetics and the and and, and counting and he's like and lacan's just like you know, I love everything Rui does, but not his book on cybernetics. And that's all we get. We just get like this little <laughs> passing. But I do think that uh, Deleuze remains faithful to Rie for these reasons. You're right. This this commitment to empiricism. And so I think that even Freud, if you pushed him, would agree with this, that the unconscious is only what it does. It is its effects. Right. And that's how else how else does one see its effects? And I think that the problem with the analyst is, is trying to, and, and even Freud later with these universal models and such, now we're trying to pre-cut and pre-fit and pre-filter the unconscious through yeah, different, through, or whatever, yeah. through, through, through different complexes, right? Through different uh, stereotyped questions about, or pre-filter or pre-filter pre-cut sexuality as though it were something that were one size fit all or or something that 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 wasn't already a kind of heterogeneous activity. And so we grid out these interpretive schemas through which to block out the block out, not in that sense, through which we 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 try to take these snapshots of the unconscious or something. And I think that that's why Rouillet later I mean it seems like it's part of this universalist kind of commitment that a lot of thought has had historically from the jump I think maybe yeah generally speaking in philosophy from its inception there's some type of um prejudice towards the universal to me it's it's missed because okay let's say you look at 
we could even narrow it down to human beings. If you look at the evolution of human beings, there's only consistency for us because our time horizons are so limited. From the perspective of the Earth, there is no stable thing of what a human is, right? There's no essence. Like it's it's constantly changing, and we only, due to our, like I said, yeah, our sort of limited time horizon and perspective, can't see the changes that are occurring, even changes that are within society, right? That like we can sort of, there's not necessarily something that makes them illegible to us in themselves, but that kind of obscures change. It's almost to go to the Hegelian thing. It's like the thing has to have changed for us to recognize it. We can't see change in process or something like that. Well, the Owl of Minerva, you know, departs at dusk. So you're right. There has to be a, it's always a kind of retroactive schematization. And I do think that that's why a concept like deterritorialization, as difficult as it may be to, to say, and not, not so fun to, to say too often, is more important for understanding beings, particularly human beings, rather than some sort of, some sort of essence that would be would mirror a typical society because what we're looking at is with deterritorialization, we are already looking at an activity embedded in a milieu and a transfer across milieus. So we're we're already looking at a dynamic way of viewing things. It's very right. similar what um what Ruye will do in the Genesis Living Forms, where he's like, look, morphology is pretty easy. Morphology just kind of being like anatomical forms of organisms that's easy what's hard is morphogenesis i mean i think simon dunn does the same thing when it's like hey our knowledge our concepts conform to our ontologies conform to individuals that's the easy part the hard part is having a science a philosophy that can follow ontogenesis that can perform a genesis of knowledge that coincides and coalesces with a genesis of beings. That's the hard part. And that's what for, I think, Simon Don, he wants to say terms are already individuated so they can think the individual, but terms and concepts precisely because they are individuated, um, they need to be able to take on the kind of shifts in rifts and formations that an embryo does. Now I'm speaking in Ruyer's mouth because that's not quite what Simon <laughs> Don says, but I can see Simon Don thinking this where it's like, right. and Deleuze says this too in Difference Repetition and elsewhere, but we can already think it where he's like, look, we look at an embryo and we see the kinds of 180 degree rotations and, and, and it's twistings and turnings and slicings and internal invaginations and foldings. We look at what an embryo does, it would rip the individuated being it will become in half, right? There is a kind of, and this is what Rie talks about in terms of equipotentiality and, and plasticity and these other things. Although really, I think he reserves plasticity for the brain, but the kind of rotations and developments an embryo can do would kill an individuated being. And so there's something too about thinking morphogenesis, thinking ontogenesis, thinking individuation requires a kind of suppleness and knowledge if you will it's not even really knowledge maybe because again knowledge 
at least from the perspective of its trajectory, it needs that kind of suppleness. And that's the difficulty, I think. And that's what Rouillet is trying to also still think about in terms of neofinalism when he's looking at embryology and why he brings up these concepts like the absolute domain of self-survey, which I think we should at least spend a little time talking about. Who else did we read that discussed this kind of, was it, uh, I feel like there was a little bit, something about maybe, who else have we read that talked about like embryogenesis? Because I feel like there's like a vague, we discussed this at some point. I know that they bring up embryogenesis really quickly in anti -Oedipus. They actually refer to, and this is later in the book, I think it's part four. It could be part three at the end of part three, but it's they cite neofinalism to give Rie credit for the distinction between the, the molecular and the molar. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. And I think they discuss embryos there, but you know, if it wasn't anti Oedipus, I can't think off the top of my head where we would have. Yeah, I can't remember. It feels like it was more recent than that, but it's possible. I will say. Really quickly before going to your point about, well, okay, two things. One, because I do want to talk about the molecular and the molar, and I will be quick about it. Um, no, that's good because it is in the text. So you have here in the notes the egg knows more than the individuated body. And I think that that's the thing. He cites, I think he says embryo specifically rather than egg is a little bit. Right. Okay. That's fair. In them, I was just kind of gesturing towards like the body without organs connection. Well, in in the uh, in the introduction to um, Genesis Living Forms, he ends the intro with this curious little line where he says, um, "Nature has no hands with which to make hands." This is like a line attributed to Plotinus or something like this. And I think that that's very important that he wants to say that the embryo has a knowledge of which our science still yet hasn't gotten to right which yeah is the very fact that the embryo knows how to make a brain which we're is... not there yet but the embryo knows <laughs> exactly. how to make a brain uh and he uses that word and I, he may put scare quotes or not but obviously it's a kind of knowledge that's not it's not the kind of knowledge we normally think of right. when we talk about what science does which is always a mixture of observation and knowledge in fact for Rie, he thinks the primary Classical sciences, at least, are much more observation than knowledge purely. I think for Rouillet, this is why he thinks something like what he's doing, a neo-finalism that would be a, a metaphysics that would not necessarily direct science, but complement it. That it's really science on the whole is working through observations. And um, in any case, the main thing being this is why what he discusses as the, the trans-spatial and the trans-temporal is very complex and difficult. And I don't think it's his most rigorous aspect of the work, but I'll be very quick about it because I do think that it's not something that he elaborates in great detail, at least in, in some of his other works, where I do think that for him, the embryo has a knowledge in the sense in which it almost has what he calls a memory as a mnemic or mnemonic theme. Oh, interesting. And what he wants to say is it's the transpatial, which we can kind of think of as a 
as akin to like a platonic eidos. It's an idea. What I think Rie likes about the notion of eidos in Greek is the fact that it means idea and it means form. And we know how important for the listener, since we are moving quickly, for Rie, forms, especially true forms, absolute forms, are self-forming, like the embryo. They are formational. They have what he wants to call primary organic consciousness. And organic is misleading here because he will attribute primary organic consciousness to, or we could just say primary consciousness to atoms. And this goes back to atoms not being what they are because they are what they are, but being what they are because of what they do, because they do what they do. He will want to distinguish forms which always come with domains of self-survey because there's no other way that the embryo without a brain can know and remember again this gets really tricky can know and remember and i say remember in a very loose sense in which it plays almost a refrain it plays this rhythm this melody of a theme a variation on a theme that it knows how to elaborate hands, feet, brains, nervous system, right? That's really he interesting, to... like, just to bounce off of uh, Bergson, for example, I think. The whole Rouillet-Bergson convergence and divergence is fascinating. It's I honestly, didn't want to derail you, but I just thought that was kind It's of honestly a lot, and I think that one of the key issues that Rouillet would have with Bergson is the way in which Bergson wants to situate himself between idealism and realism with matter and memory. And so for Bergson, we have a universe of images. The brain would, would, would be, be just one other image among other images. The only way that it's, it's privileged is the fact that it's a kind of central resonator of images. Interesting. And I think for Rouillet, he wants to drop this ontological principle of, of images while also and this is why i think he wants to say that really it's not images among images it's on the one hand forms as activities as auto subjective self-surveys of activity which are always in connection between for Rie, it's always an activity is always oriented towards a goal, towards an end, a finality, a ideal is what he calls it. But then there are also structures. And I think that for Rie, on the whole, science, physical science looks at structures. So, for example, he will say that the atoms, each atom composing a cloud, for example, has its own principle, you know, auto-subjectivity, it's self-survey. It's not a subject in the classical sense of, of, of idealism mm -hmm. as though it had a mind. We have to be very careful here because I think that Rouillet is kind of clear that there's a sense in which Rouillet is a pantheist or a panpsychist, except halfway. There's like a, <laughs> it's like a semi-pantheism. Right. It's a semi-panpsychism because the atoms 
for, I mean, like if you go to life, I mean, for Rie, he wants to look at the unicellular protozoa and say like, look, protozoan doesn't have, have a brain, doesn't have a nervous system, but for him, it has a primary consciousness, which is not the kind of consciousness we think of when we think about our own consciousness which we think about be, uh, being sort of the eye of our universe. And that for, for Rie is, is, is what he calls secondary consciousness. There is a primary organic consciousness inherent to beings that are true forms, whereby they are occupying what he calls a domain of self-survey. And the reason why this is so fucking important is because embryos couldn't do what they do without this domain of self-survey acephalic organisms wouldn't be able to carry out their schemas in a world without this primary consciousness, without this vision, without an eye or some shit, right? He usually uses vision as the model for this. And so I'll stick with that, but it's not wholly related to vision, not in the sense in which we think of the sensations and excitations in our vision and secondary consciousness, because it doesn't require eyes to see <laughs> in primary <laughs> consciousness. This is the wild thing. This is where I think Rui is a little wild. And I think that it's, it is again, and I know we won't be able to like go through all of this. This is why I, I really do think the listener would love to read chapter nine on absolute surfaces and absolute domains of survey. I think it's, it's fascinating. But one of the things is what we, we normally think of the fact that, for example, like he'll say a photograph, for example, in order to you know, photograph something, we have to be in an extra dimension. So being in a three-dimensional space, we take a two-dimensional. You know, we're, we're, able to, we're able to have a photograph. It's a two-dimensional image. It may kind of simulate depth of field and these other things. But what he wants to say is primary consciousness is not like a photographic apparatus. If it were, there would need to be a mind behind my mind or an eye behind my eye to see what I see when I am in when I am in my field of vision. He wants to kind of even extrapolate from this that the body in the mind-body problem is a kind of false problem because for him bodies are epiphenomenon. <laughs> I know it's just fucking crazy. He wants to kind of say it's an illusion in the fact that we see a human being outside the field and we imagine ourselves to be in that same thing where we are, we are that, that body. Now this becomes, I think that th this is something that would be fascinating to really like go into because there is a whole trend of studies about embodiment. And I don't necessarily think when Rie calls the body an epiphenomenon, he is diminishing the fact that we in our absolute domain of self-survey are embodied i don't think he's I don't, I don't think he's um dismissing embodiment i think he's dismissing the substance body in mind body in the cartesian dualism if that makes sense and if that makes sense then i think he actually accords with a lot of studies on embodiment although that would be a whole another thing but but the thing that's fascinating to me is like one can imagine and 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 this is a great i think it's on page i was talking about this earlier this is on page 93 where he shows a painter who's painted a landscape and he's got the road and everything he's painted everything in his field of vision 
But the one thing he hasn't painted is himself. So he paints himself, but then realizes that he needs to be painting himself, painting himself. And so you have a kind of infinite regress. And this is part of the reason why the absolute domain of self-survey is so important, because if we were to imagine that we needed an external dimension perpendicular to our field of vision, to our field of what Samuel Alexander calls self-enjoyment, and this is the term he gets from Samuel Alexander, sort of obscure Australian philosopher, but it's important. Self-enjoyment is sort of an immediate, we could just say immediate lived, ex lived experience without objectification. So it's non-dimensional. I think this is the important thing, right? The domain of self-survey takes place without distance. So in my field of vision, yes, I can measure to the wall 10 meters or whatever. But in my self-enjoyment of my sort of, it's only in my secondary consciousness that that the that the wall is 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 distant from me. It's in my primary consciousness that all of which I experience is sort of non-dimensional and non-localizable and immediately, as I said, self-enjoyed without a kind of mediator. This is the hard thing to, to take into place. If we were to think about a relative domain, that's secondary consciousness. We're already thinking, we're thinking in three dimensions, but in order to account for what I see and to represent it, and this is what you were good to bring out, because this is a critique of representation, right? It's, it's in the artist trying to represent himself in the field, in the absolute field, that we need an eye behind the eye to see what the eye sees. And then we need another eye behind that eye. And that's infinite regress. So I think that what Rie wants to talk about is not just the unicellular organism and uh, not just the human being, but all the way down to like, you know, subatomic particles, atoms, whatever, they enjoy a kind of, or they, they are in their activity, a kind of self-enjoyment of an absolute domain of self-survey. Without this, we have to actually add on a lot of things to make it accord with a kind of classical physics where we have to imagine these substances that atoms are rather than the activity of what they do. And so we have to like add in what, what I think is what we have to do is reverse neo-finalism. We have to reverse finality and try to project instead of toward the end of which things act, we have to presuppose reasons for why they act. And I think that it's to avoid that presupposing putting everything in the origin or something like this mm -hmm. that we also have to posit this self-enjoyment of the absolute domain of self-survey as activity as a kind of work activity is what he wants to call it work activity implying an ideal or a or a set of values to be oriented by and that's why at the very beginning of the book, he keeps using the word sense. Because in French, I think I've told you the sense means obviously sense or meaning, but also means direction. It's a vector. 
So I think we have to distinguish between Adams in their absolute domain of self-survey, which are what they do, versus what he wants to call aggregates. So he like the atoms in a cloud or the humans in a crowd are all absolute domains of self-survey. But when we look at a crowd, we can see kind of statistical phenomena and the way that crowds move or the way that clouds move and the way that mountains are not forms in the sense of absolute true forms in the sense in which he talks about it, but aggregates of atoms and molecules, et cetera. And I think that that's where he wants to say that science is much more at home. Now, obviously, quantum physics is and embryology gives the lie to this because not all science, but classical physics, Newtonian physics is very at home with looking at statistical aggregates of atoms. So it's, it's at home in the molar domain because it's on the domain of the mole that we can, I mean, that's really where we divide, derive like um, atomic weights for our periodic table, right? Is it's the mole. It's like, if you took what the weight of, um, you can derive what the weight of quote unquote one atom, the atomic weight of one atom by Avogadro's number, right? Mm -hmm. There's a constant that we use to look at mass phenomena. Nietzsche too is really good on this. I mean, he's not, he's known for a lot of things, but he's not always known for talking about the very fact that, you know, he says something almost critiquing Kant, but also finding something fascinating in him where he's like, he's like, look, as Kant said, nature cares about species, not individuals. And kind of what he means is like the common, the easy scientific outlook on phenomena is to take them in on mass, to take them as mass statistical aggregates. And it's from that point of view that a lot, yeah, sure, a lot can be done. We can look at this quote unquote structure of the universe. But again, as I said, looking at structure doesn't give us the whole picture. It doesn't give us the self-forming, self-organizational, the perspective of becoming or whatever the fuck, if you just want to reduce it to typical philosophical terms, the perspective of the embryo, right? The, as you know, Rie talks about it, there were fascinating experiments being done at the time where you're cutting an embryo, you're, you're twisting it 180 degrees, you're doing all these things. And there are different stages of embryos where before, um, a certain threshold, you can do all these things to an embryo and it still comes out right it, before a certain stage of determination, you can fuck with the embryo in all kinds of ways. And it still knows how to play its mnemic theme to come out the way it's supposed to. Same with like graphs and things like this, where you're transplanting things before a certain critical threshold, the graphs are going to create what the embryo was already going to do in that domain. After a critical threshold, after a determinable period, now you start to get to irreversibility. This is where you start to, again, to use traditional terms, get out of this almost pure domain of the virtual or, or, or becoming. Now we're starting to get to being, if you will. What a, you know, now we are starting to actualize these domains into structures and lose that equipotential form. And I think that he, this is why he turns to the brain and shows that, look, 
the embryo of the brain are very similar. There's a plasticity of the brain. And as we've seen in all of these crazy experiments on like rats and we're, we're scarring their fucking brains and shit. And, and whether we look at the, the modality of memory or learning, we can scar a shit ton of their brain. It doesn't really matter where. And they still retain a certain level of competence. that's almost compared to normal. And so he wants to see in the brain the kind of equipotentiality that he sees in the embryo. You know, it's got, again, this is what we might call plasticity today. And I think that for him, that plasticity of the brain is actually inherent in the work activities of true absolute forms, even beings without a brain even beings that aren't considered organic. There is a kind of equipotentiality in their domain for work activity, for neo-finalist activity, for carrying out what they do. And it's in their self-forming activity that their essence lies, not in some sort of abstract substance. I mean, that's kind of like, Marx, right? <laughs> even. I think so. I mean, the activity, right? That aspect. Metaphysically, it resonates with Marx. It's investigating a different domain of phenomena. But I don't think that it's... Um, I, I think it's, it, it's definitely in line with what Marx is talking about. Now, this stuff about primary consciousness like the atom having consciousness, I think would throw some people for a loop. That's going to be the, the hard thing to swallow and where the panpsychism, he says something so beautiful where he's like, look, panpsychism does itself a great disservice by like overstepping its boundaries. And I think the main thing, and I, I won't even try to find it, but the main thing he's trying to say is like, I think Rouillet is trying to say, like, look, panpsychism is right, except that it confuses or it conflates secondary consciousness, especially the secondary consciousness of humans who have brains. And in our habits, in our everyday way of being, our being in the world, as Heidegger might say, we're always sort of informed by our secondary consciousness, by our sensations, by our, you know, reaction to stimuli. There is something where Rie like talks about how instincts in the ethological sense, instincts and drives, pulsions in French, that they have a way of, I think Rie doesn't really speak this way. So I'm going to be trying to recapitulate what he says, but they have a manner of straddling the secondary and primary consciousness. It's not necessarily that they inform us about primary consciousness, right? As though the drives were sending us messages about primary consciousness, but it's that they allow a kind of, maybe not overlap is even the right thing. Again, that's, that's such a spatially loaded thing, but they allow for a kind of relay between our secondary consciousness and our, uh, and our primary consciousness. So I think that what Rie is trying to say about panpsychism is 
right, but it does itself a disservice in its conflation. You know, it's, it's as though there were little minds inhabiting true forms. And I think, I think that that's wrong because the embryo doesn't need a mind to make minds. It doesn't need a brain to make brains, right? This is why Ruiz talks about it in terms of memory. And I think that even if Ruiz is writing this before the discovery of DNA, he is familiar with the biology of chromosomes and a kind of code in gene sequences. And this is why he calls it mnemic themes as though it's a melody and a rhythm to be played. I think he's wary of trying to locate a code wherein those themes would be hard written. The reason being is that again reduces something dynamic and equipotential and absolute to structure. It would be a structure of beings or of genetics rather than something self-forming. That's the real opposition is a kind of passivity of formation in structure versus a self-organizing, self-forming, constantly in formation and inactivity of what he thinks of as true forms and what Deleuze and Guattari think of as the brain, right? Whether it be a superject, inject or eject, of art, science, and philosophy, this junction without unity, this absolute self-survey, that's that activity is important. I think that that's where I believe Rouillet is a kind of panpsychist, but secondarizes the brain and secondarizes the mind because the mind is just kind of anthropomorphic crystallization. It's a kind of hierarchical imposition, whereas mind, or I think better in French, l'esprit, spirit is everywhere. That's Rouillet's point. Spirit is everywhere without being spirits, or mind is everywhere without being minds. Mind is like this formational activity of self-enjoyment, not modeled on human minds, or the mind of God. That's the hard part. We have to kind of, and really, honestly, you know, it, a part of this is, is just the prejudices of language. We have to like use these terms that are already anthropomorphically like charged and, and de-anthropomorphize them as we use them. And so it is very, um, I think that's part of the, that's part of why he sounds like a fucking kook. Can you maybe unpack self-survey a little bit right yeah i mean I'll, I'll try to speak again where it's you know just maybe put a point on that aspect yeah i mean this is where for Rie primary consciousness is non-dimensional so we don't need n plus one dimensions and where it's impersonal even if you might speak of these eyes it's not the eye of secondary consciousness. It's not the eye, the subject of the statement or the subject of enunciation. It is kind of, or even the subject of the unconscious. In a certain sense, this is why Paul Baines writes about subjectless subjectivities. There is this kind of like non-dimensional self-enjoying 
non-substantial subjectivity without subject, like an operator. You just see what I'm saying? Like secondary consciousness, we're used to this notion of, of a little man, a little homunculus in the brain that's like mm-hmm. pulling the strings and the puppets and the absolute domain of self-survey. And really self-survey is, is rough because it puts self back into it. In French, it's auto-survey. Ah, okay. Uh, that now, makes but even auto goes back to kind of notions of self in Greek, but it's already a little more, it's a little better in English because we yeah. think of something uh, right. as but automatic. It, like, right, or like auto-erotic or something like that. Right. So that, that's where self would come in. Right, exactly. We, we, there's a way in which the auto in English and in French has already ejected the subject, gotcha. has already evacuated the self. Again, this is where language is tricky. Auto-survey or auto-subjectivity, which Rie even points out as a, perhaps a, a strange turn of phrase. But this is one of the, another way he talks about it is auto-subjectivity. Primary consciousness that has nothing to do with consciousness in the way that we think about it in terms of secondary consciousness, right? You know, and it's like secondary we, consciousness is another fold of primary consciousness. Yeah. Made possible by the nervous system and by the brainstem and by the. I mean, it's a well, or a, like a deterioration, or it's like a deterioration of primary consciousness. Yes, reterritorialized on the brain or on the the full or throughout the brain, reterritorialized onto a self, onto an I. Yeah, yeah. Onto a subject. <laughs> That's the way I would definitely agree with you. If we remember, yeah, I agree with your your movement of deterritorialization. If we remember that it's reterritorializing onto something that becomes like a global person, right? To speak in anti-Oedipus terms, sure. right? That, yeah, be, yeah, that, yeah. Be, that becomes someone with a name, a personality, right? I think that this is what Deleuze and Guattari are looking for, especially Deleuze even earlier, but definitely the two of them together is looking for and why Rouguet is, is held in such high esteem because what Deleuze is trying to find, and this is also why he turns to Simondon, is he's looking at Simondon's notion of a pre-individual field wherein singularities in their heterogeneity are able to connect and compose in dynamic milieus, you know, and resonate across orders of magnitude in order to explain and think through individuation and how psychic, physical, biological, trans-individual slash spiritual individuations are not layers on top of one another as the one were earlier and whatnot, but are these temporally complex synchronizations that are going on. And this is what Rie talks about as the fibrous structure of the universe. We could talk about the fibrous structure of the individual, where it's not like the physical individuation comes first, and then the biological, and then the psychical, and then the trans-individual, as though there were a hierarchy. That's what Deleuze and Guattari and Simondon, and I think Rie too. I mean, that's where know, the partial the partial objects, right? The partial like objects. They're not overdetermined. Mm, yeah, exactly. And and just the body of the organs, as we said, right? Body of the organs isn't opposed to the organs, it's opposed to organization. Right. And they're uh, sort of alongside one another. They're not in 
if they're alongside one another, we could use the phrase from Deleuze and Guattari's What is Philosophy at the end, where there may be a junction, the body with organs could be a junction, but it's not a conjunction, it's not a unity, right? This is where, just to try to reiterate with self-survey, you know, I've tried to use Samuel Alexander's phrase self-enjoyment because it's very important for Rie. It is this distanceless, non-objectified, lived experience, if you will of primary consciousness and so we can talk about the protozoa if you will self-enjoying without distance without dimension a type of consciousness and that's how it's able to solve problems and post problems because as we saw with the and guachery what we've seen in our trek throughout the work but i'm thinking specifically of bergsonism to bring back bergson for a moment because Bergson himself kind of formulates it in a similar way where life is about the, the, these posing and solving of problems. And so I think that that's, if we can think of, whether it be the virtual and the actual, blah, 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 or we can just think of the work activity of primary consciousness, of absolute forms of self-survey. That's one way to think of primary consciousness without resorting to anthropomorphic visions where we can think of even embryos you know we, we talked about the protozoan we can think of embryos as it has mnemic themes and ruyer sense where it's it's got melodies to be composed and, and played it's got problems to solve that are dynamically elaborated in its self-formation so i think that for for ruyer one of the reasons why if you don't have an absolute domain of self-survey then you either have to have a little man in your head directing you around in consciousness or you have to have an eye behind your your eyes to see what it sees you have to have a god composing the monads in the best possible world you have to have an instance transcendent to the primary consciousness to direct and guide it. So you have to have an embryo behind the embryo giving it instructions or something like this. And I think that that's where Rouillet sees that you lead to an absurdity in the infinite regress. This sounds like an explanation of kind of like a, I don't know, I would say maybe like radical imminence in a way. I think that Laurel and, and Rie have a lot to say to each other and speak to one another. My, my sense of Rouillet's Gnosticism is that when he speaks of God in the final chapter, he's talking about God in ways that I'm not exactly sure are very clear in the sense in which it feels as though he is thinking of an absolute, he's thinking of a, he speaks in terms of transcendence, but I don't think it's a radical eminence. I think it may be an absolute eminence. And the difference seemingly would be that when he speaks of God, he is still kind of erecting a type of, I think that he's still kind of erecting a, a type of Gnostic duality between an ungraspable and then a, a demiurgic instance. And so I do think that we can kind of see a pantheism, a semi-pantheism in his work where it all the way down to atoms and subatomic particles, we see 
the sort of self-forming dynamic becoming of God as though God were inherent in all absolute domains. The only place God would be absent, if, if, if there were absence, would be in structural connections. So the way that atoms compose would be almost that fallen material world I was talking about in the classical Gnostic schema. So aggregates, statistical aggregates, structures would be... Molar aggregates. Would The molar, exactly, would be this quote-unquote fallen. But again, without the mole, without the mole, I almost said molar. The <laughs> molar, but it's not moral. I don't think Rouye thinks of it morally. But I do still think there's a kind of, I don't want to say hierarchy, but there is a kind of natura naturata, this naturing nature and this natured nature thing that, that he inherits from Spinoza. And he's rethinking it without the modes and the attributes and all these other things. Oh, okay, interesting. It's as though the modes would be the statistical aggregates and they just reflect the ways in which these kinds of aggregates are, these structures are formed by true forms. You know, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I think that, you know, with, with Laura Wells one, you know, I think that Rouillet is thinking still like a, like a, like a scientist in the way that he is still kind of thinking that in my reading, he is still conflating the real and reality. And I think that makes him a good metaphysician and a good scientist and a good philosopher. I don't think Laura well conflates the real and reality. The real is not reflected in reality. Rie is exploring the domain of reality, even when he goes to like, primary consciousness i do think that primary consciousness has some glimpses of this notion of vision in one and i think that's where i would go even if larwell even if vision in one is a kind of turn of phrase that one finds in only a certain like time frame of larwell's writing i do think i would go to vision in one and philosophy two and three to talk about primary consciousness except that again it has to be it's still not the same right because primary consciousness isn't some kind of mystical thing. And I'm not saying vision in one is mystical, but it is an experience that is sort of, that turns us away from the world in a certain way. I think actually it's less in primary consciousness maybe than in the Gnostic struggle against the orders of the world. And that's where I would like to read more of Rouillet's political stuff on his philosophy of values and these other things where Laurel and Rie actually might have more in common than talking about embryos and things like that. Because I think it's in the question of what Gnosticism tries to give to the question of the salvation of humans coming from a sort of enlightenment. And what would that enlightenment look like? It's not necessarily what kind of education is required because it's not necessarily a worldly knowledge that one saves themselves from the world. That would be paradoxical. And yet at the same time, a proper understanding of, of existence, of existence as work activity for Rie, I think gets us on a path outside of viewing phenomena in a common sensical way.
So I do think Rouillet is, is much closer to Deleuze in that he's struggling against the type of image of thought that falsely thinks of consciousness as a kind of human attribute. I think there's a struggle against anthropomorphism in Rouillet's development of the idea of primary consciousness and exploring it through auto-survey of auto-subjectivity and trying to find pure forms, true forms everywhere. Structures being epiphenomena, secondary. In the same way, I think that um, the body for him becomes epiphenomenal. Which paradoxically doesn't mean that the mind is primary because in, in Descartes, the mind is still the mind of secondary consciousness. So he kind of fucks Descartes on both ends, right? He kind of is a double whammy against, <laughs> against the mind-body problem. Who duels the dualists or something like that. Right, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I think that um, with Laura, well, we would have to know more about Rouillet's Gnosticism. And I do think that it's, there could be a, a front there. It's in Deleuze that I think that what we're going to get more out of Rouillet's understanding of a kind of virtual, actual right, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, framing totally. of the world, molar, molecular, these kinds yeah. of things are fundamental to Deleuze. And that even if they're not exactly one-to-one -one in Rouillet, they play similar functions, right? I think that that's where, you know, the struggle against opinion whether it be the opinion of an anthropocentric universe or the opinion of science seeing statistical aggregates as primary that kind of thing i see as there is a critique of there's a noology if you will which is a modeling or critique of images of thought in rouillet and that's why i think he's he's important to look at is that a nice little place to i'm not saying there's not more we could talk about i just oh, thought that sure. was oh like... there's like a million things That'll wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Chair and Taylor Atkins. We'll see y'all next week. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.